Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide, sexual assault, torture, and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. September 11, 1945. 60-year-old Hideki Tojo stared out the window of his study and watched six or so cars pull up to his Tokyo home. U.S. military police poured out their doors. It had been almost a month since Emperor Hirohito announced Japanese surrender to the Americans, ending the war in the Pacific. In the weeks that followed, Tojo had contemplated his next move. He'd thought of running, of disappearing into mainland Asia. But there were only ever two real options. Tojo never feared death, and he believed that taking his own life was more honorable than living as a captive. At the same time, the code he lived by mandated that he remain loyal to the emperor. If he allowed himself to be captured, he could take the blame for the war, potentially saving the emperor's life. When the Americans began pounding on the door, all Tojo could do was think, do I die honorably or do I protect the emperor? Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our third episode in a special four-episode collaboration with Conspiracy Theories as we commemorate the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Last time on Conspiracy Theories, Molly and Carter discussed the lead-up to the attack on Pearl Harbor from the American perspective. This week on Dictators, we'll continue with the Japanese perspective through the eyes of Prime Minister Hideki Tojo. We'll explore the swift Japanese domination of the South Pacific and the ensuing slow retreat as Tojo was unable to hold off the Allies. We'll also explore a few of the atrocities the Japanese committed against POWs, including the brutal experimentations of Unit 731. Next time on Conspiracy Theories, Molly and Carter will look back on the Pearl Harbor attack and examine several theories that maintain it wasn't a surprise, including one that suggests President Roosevelt took diplomatic measures which encouraged Japan to make the first strike against America. Coming up, we'll head to Tojo's Japan. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. In the fall of 1941, tensions between Japan and the United States reached a breaking point. Four years earlier, Japan had invaded China. Then, in the summer of 1941, Japan took control of French Indochina. The United States was never comfortable with Japanese expansion, which aimed to establish a so-called Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, one that was free of Western imperialism and guided by Japanese influence. Still, the U.S. had put up with it until Indochina. This was one step too far. The U.S. decided it was time to retaliate and hit Japan where it would hurt the most. Oil. According to some estimates, the Japanese army consumed 400 tons of oil per hour. And Japan didn't have its own reliable fuel sources. The American oil embargo was a disaster. In its wake, Emperor Hirohito appointed 56-year-old Hideki Tojo as his new prime minister. Hirohito gave Tojo a mandate. Try for peace and oil one more time. And if it doesn't work, lead Japan into war. In the final days of October 1941, Tojo tried for peace. He and his cabinet sent the U.S. two diplomatic solutions. Under Proposal A, Japan agreed to withdraw from Indochina and the majority of China when and if a peace treaty was signed with Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek. At the same time, Japan would promote free trade throughout Asia, so long as the U.S. did the same. If the U.S. didn't accept Proposal A, Proposal B offered the removal of Japanese troops from Indochina once peace was restored with China. In exchange, the U.S. would not interfere with Japanese-Chinese negotiations, allow Japan access to natural resources in the Indies, and sell a million tons of fuel to Japan. Tojo and his cabinet agreed that if the United States didn't accept either proposal by December 1st, then they would seek war. According to author John Toland, as December approached, 
Tojo was more than willing to make further compromises if the Americans also came part way, and would soon tell an associate, I'm praying to the gods that some way we'll come to an agreement with America. While Tojo, in theory, had no qualms about going to war with the United States, in reality, he worried Japan would not survive a prolonged war. With a large number of troops tied up in China, Tojo recognized that Japanese military capabilities were limited. And although Tojo had a disgust for Americans, believing them to be weak-willed and dishonorable, he couldn't deny that their military strength in the Pacific had greatly increased. Begrudgingly, Tojo fought for peace. Unfortunately, the U.S. refused to budge. On November 26th, Secretary of State Cordell Hull handed Japanese Ambassador Kichisaburo Nomura a note. Not only did it reiterate the U.S.'s desire for Japan to leave China and Indochina immediately, it also demanded that Japan give up its extraterritorial rights to China and recognize Kai-shek's government. Upon reading the so-called Hull note, Tojo realized that negotiations were futile. On December 1st, he stood before Emperor Hirohito. With his usual humorless demeanor, Tojo proclaimed, Matters have reached the point where Japan must begin war with the United States, Great Britain, and the Netherlands to preserve her empire. Emperor Hirohito agreed. It was time to go to war. Hideki Tojo was the prime minister, and he was also still the war minister. It's natural to assume he'd be in charge of plotting next steps and deciding Japan's military strategy for the coming fight. And yet, he wasn't. Once the shoguns lost their power, the Japanese military was divided into highly autonomous branches. The army generals were in charge of their troops, navy leaders ran their fleets, and the government was simply kept up to date. Because Tojo came from an army background, he was periodically invited to give input on army strategy, although whether or not the army took his advice was up to the generals. Meanwhile, when it came to the Navy, Tojo had zero authority, which means the initial plan to strike the U.S. was actually orchestrated by Admiral Izoroku Yamamoto. In fact, Tojo didn't learn of the Navy's plan until the end of November, by which point Yamamoto and his fleet were already on their way. December 7, 1941, dawned sunny and quiet at Hawaii's Pearl Harbor Naval Base. Because it was a Sunday, many of the sailors and airmen had time off. But while American sailors waited in line for morning chow, Japanese fighter pilots flew out of the clouds and over Battleship Row. Just before 8 a.m., the Japanese attack began. For nearly two hours, around 300 Japanese pilots relentlessly shelled the American naval fleet. And while the Americans, after their initial surprise, were able to strike back, the damage was already done. By the time the attack ended, the U.S. Navy was crippled. Nearly every ship in the harbor was either destroyed or heavily damaged. Over 100 airplanes had been lost, and more importantly, 2,403 U.S. personnel and civilians were killed. 
Because of the international dateline, the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred in Japan on the morning of December 8th. Tojo had to be awakened when the first report came, Torah, Torah, Torah. The coded message meant that the surprise attack was a success. Tojo was beyond pleased. According to historian James L. McLean, he proclaimed the attacks a miraculous success and an auspicious beginning. At around noon, Tojo and Hirohito informed the Japanese populace that they were now at war with the U.S. and Britain. They assured the public that they had no other options and that Japan's survival depended on it. But Japan, they promised, would, quote, crush every obstacle in its path. It did. In the following weeks, the Japanese war machine steamrolled through Southeast Asia like an unstable juggernaut. Relying on the element of surprise, they launched swift, simultaneous attacks on multiple targets throughout the region. Hours after Pearl Harbor, the Imperial Army attacked an American airfield in the Philippines. Within less than a month, the Japanese occupied the capital of Manila. Meanwhile, also on December 8th, the Japanese launched synchronized surprise campaigns against British colonies in the region. First was Hong Kong, which ultimately fell on December 25th. Then, Singapore and Malaya's greatest base fell on February 15, 1942. One by one, American and British colonies and military bases fell to the Japanese. Soon after that, non-Western-controlled territory came under Japanese occupation as well, like the oil fields in Sumatra. According to McLean, by the spring of 1942, the Japanese flag flew over one quarter of the globe. As word of the Japanese domination of the Pacific trickled back home, the people couldn't have been more thrilled. Ever since Pearl Harbor, they had been swept up in war fever. At rallies and factories, people sang patriotic songs and cheered every time another city fell. After four and a half years of stalemate in China, the vast takeover of the Pacific was intoxicating. The people were so invested in the fight that many of them were willing to do whatever it took to ensure their nation won. Even if it meant allowing Tojo to turn the nation into a police state. What set Hideki Tojo apart from the prime ministers before him was the fact that he was willing to stretch the limits of his role's authority. He never craved power, but he was a soldier. He was dedicated to serving his country and his emperor. And since his role directing Japan's troops was limited, he had to find another way to participate in the war effort. So he decided to tackle the home front and flex his power on Japanese citizens. Once the war began, he adopted an additional title, Minister of Home Affairs. Under the auspices of that title, Tojo's ministry surveilled and arrested any and all political dissidents. Communists, anti-war activists, Soviet and American sympathizers, and Koreans were swept off the streets. At the same time, he encouraged the people to keep an eye on their neighbors in case the enemy infiltrated. If you see something, say something. Next, Tojo tightened freedoms of speech and assembly. The press was transformed into little more than a propaganda machine. 
Finally, Tojo demanded cultural unity. Similar to the days of the Tokugawa shogunate, anything and everything Western was forbidden. Clothes, music, furniture, and education all had to reflect Japanese culture. This was ostensibly something that was hard to do, but because the people wholeheartedly supported Tojo's war, perhaps there was little resistance. Why wouldn't the people support the war? Throughout the winter and spring of 1942, the Japanese military swept through the Pacific at an unheard-of speed. American and British soldiers were forced to retreat or surrender. Those who surrendered suddenly found themselves prisoners of war. And with Tojo as war minister, the Japanese policy for POWs became one of the most heinous in modern history. Coming up, Tojo turns a blind eye to war crimes, and two major battles change the course of the war. Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. After the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese Imperial Army swept through the South Pacific at a breakneck pace. In less than six months, they planted the Japanese flag on American and British colonies like the Philippines and Malaya. Back home, Hideki Tojo created a nationalistic police state, implementing repressive measures as a means to support the war. But what the Japanese people suffered paled in comparison to the way the country treated prisoners of war. The Bushido Code, the creed of the samurai, instilled a belief that death wasn't something to fear. Dying in battle was honorable, but being captured brought humiliation. Thus, it was far better to take your own life than fall into enemy hands. The Japanese military applied this belief to the enemy. If an enemy soldier was captured, it was because he allowed himself to be captured, and thus he was dishonorable. An indictment would later explain the general mentality when it came to POWs. They were, quote, disgraced and entitled to live only by the tolerance of their captors. In other words, they deserved horrendous mistreatment. Tojo may not have been in charge of the Japanese troops, but with regards to POWs, his opinions were well aligned with military consensus 
he had little respect for enemy soldiers, and as war minister, he made little effort to make sure POWs were treated humanely. The closest he ever got was a speech regarding prison camps. He told commanders to observe the barest of standards. Most importantly, though, he announced that prisoners mustn't be allowed to lie idle. Rather, they should be forced to contribute to the Japanese war effort. As historian Edwin Hoyt notes, Tojo's vague proclamation essentially gave camp and army commanders carte blanche to treat or mistreat POWs however they desired. This meant starving and beating captives. The Pacific theater quickly became notorious for Japanese atrocities. One of the earliest examples of Japanese mistreatment of POWs occurred in April 1942. It's known as the Bataan Death March. After Manila fell in January, American and Filipino soldiers were forced to retreat to the Bataan Peninsula. For about three months, Americans and Filipinos held out as long as they could. But in early April, disease was rampant and supplies had run out, causing roughly 76,000 American and Filipino soldiers to surrender. After the surrender, the prisoners were ordered to march 66 miles up the peninsula to prison camps. Already malnourished, many of these men were given either rice, salt water, or nothing to eat. Then, those who grew too weak or sick to march were beaten or bayoneted to death. No one knows exactly how many prisoners were killed. But by some estimates, on the march itself, between 7,000 and 10,000 men died, over 2,300 of them American. The Bataan Death March was by and large one of the most egregious examples of the atrocities the Japanese committed against their enemies. But it wasn't the only one. After the fall of Singapore in early 1942, an evacuation boat sank and the few survivors made it to the island of Bangka. There, they were all seized by Japanese troops. The majority were thrown into prison camps. But 22 Australian Red Cross nurses suffered an even more tragic fate. According to Vivian Bullwinkle, the Japanese soldiers sexually assaulted the nurses before marching them down to the water and executing them. Vivian Bullwinkle was the massacre's sole survivor. After being shot once, she played dead, tricking the soldiers. She eventually fell back into Japanese hands, but ultimately survived the war. While American, British, and other Allied prisoners of war experienced incredible mistreatment at the hands of the Japanese, the people to arguably suffer the most were the Chinese. Because while the Japanese were fighting the Allies, they were still in the midst of the Second Sino-Japanese War. Much has been written about the experimental atrocities the Nazis committed during the Holocaust. But less attention has been paid to Japan's program of experimenting on Chinese prisoners, a project called Unit 731. Technically, Unit 731 began in 1937. However, it remained operational throughout the entirety of Tojo's reign 
and he did nothing to stop it. Unit 731 was a four-square-mile complex located in Harbin, Manchuria. Sanctioned to research biological and chemical warfare, over 3,000 scientists and team members at the complex performed a litany of experiments on live humans, namely Chinese POWs. Among the most stomach-turning, slowly roasting people with electricity, amputations while a person is awake, injecting people with anthrax, cholera, or syphilis, locking someone in a pressurized chamber and waiting to see how long until their eyes popped, and slowly freezing someone to death. During the so-called experiments, scientists studied their subjects' reactions and used their observations to create diabolical new weapons. For example, as journalist Stephen Kinzer writes... Technicians used their research to prepare poisoned chocolate and chewing gum and manufactured tons of anthrax that were placed in bomb casings and used to kill thousands of Chinese civilians. An estimated 3,000 people were said to have died from the experiments in Harbin, and as many as 300,000 were killed by Japanese biological weapons, which were designed based on the experiments at Unit 731. It's not entirely clear how much Hideki Tojo knew about what took place during the Bataan Death March or at Unit 731. Most likely, he deliberately chose to turn a blind eye, claiming ignorance. Perhaps when reports of POW mistreatment trickled out of the military, Tojo either downplayed them as rumors, claimed the reports were false, or he spun them into propaganda to boost public morale. Although, he didn't need much help on that front. By the end of the spring of 1942, public enthusiasm for the war was at an all-time high. Japan had a strong grip over the Pacific, and the dream of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere seemed like a reality. Tojo and the rest of the Japanese leadership went into June with high hopes and ambitious plans. Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, the architect of Pearl Harbor, wanted the Japanese Navy to take control of the American naval base at Midway, located just over 1,000 miles south of Pearl Harbor. Yamamoto's hope was to use it as a launch point for future attacks against America. The plan went into effect on June 4th. The Japanese bombed the base, apparently successfully. However, when the fighter planes returned to the aircraft carriers to refuel for a second wave, the American naval fleet came out of nowhere and ambushed them. American codebreakers had caught wind of the attack and planned a counterattack of their own. For the next two days, the two armies clashed in the air and on the sea. Finally, on June 6th, Admiral Yamamoto ordered a retreat. The loss was devastating. The Japanese lost over 3,000 men, hundreds of airplanes, and four aircraft carriers. The Battle of Midway was the first major Japanese defeat in the war, and a shocking one at that. And yet, because of the disconnect between the Navy, the Army, and leadership in the cabinet, 
Tojo didn't hear about the Midway defeat for over a month after it happened. When he did, he hoped that this would be Japan's only major defeat. It wasn't. Midway was just the beginning. The reports hitting Tojo's desk got progressively worse. On August 7th, Allied forces landed on Guadalcanal, part of the British Solomon Islands. Underfed, undersupplied, and outmatched, the Japanese troops stationed there were unable to stop the Allies. By the end of the year, Tojo demanded an evacuation of Guadalcanal. There was some resistance. Many within the upper echelons of the army demanded that Tojo, as war minister, expropriate civilian ships to help bring in supplies and reinforcements. But Tojo knew Guadalcanal was a lost cause. And ultimately, in February 1943, after six months of brutal fighting in the jungles, the Japanese pulled out. Suddenly, they were on the defensive. Hideki Tojo was on the defensive, too. Though he had a base of support within the army, many senior officers and the whole of the Navy started to question his ability to wage the war. He'd promised them the Americans were soft. It was clear now that was false. Desperate to turn things around, Tojo decided to change Japan's strategy for 1943. Instead of expanding the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, he was going to strengthen it. By exploiting the resources of the conquered lands, Tojo hoped to turn the tide of the war in Japan's favor. Instead, all he did was prolong Japan's inevitable defeat. Coming up, losses in the battlefield fuel a conspiracy to oust Tojo. Now, back to the story. By the beginning of 1943, the Japanese military suffered two major defeats. With his back against the wall, Hideki Tojo knew he needed to change strategy. Since the inception of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, the mission was to promote Pan-Asianism with Japanese influence. Japan wanted to kick out Western nations and serve as the de facto powerhouse of the entire region. In the initial days of the war, many colonized lands actually welcomed the Japanese with open arms. They were hailed as heroes thanks to their willingness to grant the colonized nations some independence and thanks to their idea, quote, Asia for the Asian people. In the wake of Midway and Guadalcanal, however, Tojo's vision changed. Now, the other Asian nations would be used to fuel the Japanese war machine without limit. By the beginning of 1943, the people of Burma, Indochina, and the Dutch East Indies found themselves under much more brutal conditions, the kind of oppression the Chinese and Koreans were already familiar with. Meanwhile, back in Tokyo, Tojo decided to shore up his personal power by filling his cabinet with sycophants. He also increased surveillance on dissidents and instructed the military police to keep track of anyone suspected of undermining his authority. Finally, Tojo took over as munitions minister. He might still be helpless when it came to dictating military strategy, but at least he could control the supply line. 
Unfortunately for Tojo, none of it made a difference. Over the course of 1943, the Japanese continued to lose islands throughout the Pacific. Then came the greatest blow of all, the death of Admiral Yamamoto, the head of the Navy. On April 18th, Yamamoto was on his way to inspect an airbase in the Solomon Islands when American pilots ambushed his transport and shot his plane down. Without Yamamoto's leadership, the Japanese Navy floundered. In Tokyo, senior officials took these devastating setbacks as more examples of Tojo's incompetence and expressed as much to Emperor Hirohito. Still, for now, Hirohito believed in his prime minister. In fact, at the beginning of 1944, Hirohito called in the heads of both the army and navy and proclaimed that they were the problem. As historian Edwin Hoyt writes, he accused them of, quote, obstructionism in the war effort and overstating army victories. Still, despite the backing of his emperor, Tojo was on borrowed time, and to some degree, he was aware of that. So he came up with yet another new strategy. In order to win the war against the Allies, he needed to win the war in Asia. The plan was twofold. Operation Ichigo was a major offensive in China with the hopes of putting an end to that war and freeing up soldiers to fight in the Pacific. The other part was Operation Ugo. The plan was to cause chaos for the British by invading India, overthrow the British colonial government, and establish a new pro-Japanese Indian government. The invasion was a complete and total failure. By the time Japanese troops retreated in July 1944, they had suffered roughly 72,000 casualties. Meanwhile, Operation Ichigo began in April 1944 and became the largest Japanese offensive of the Pacific War. 500,000 Japanese soldiers tore their way through eastern and central China on a mission to capture Allied airbases. The operation lasted until May of 1944 and was ultimately a major tactical success for the Japanese. Unfortunately, Hideki Tojo didn't reap the rewards. While Ichigo was still underway, the failure of Operation Ugo and the continued failures in the Pacific led to more and more calls from senior military officials they wanted Tojo's resignation. Emperor Hirohito remained Tojo's last and most important champion, helping him cling to power. But that changed at the beginning of July with the Battle of Saipan. Throughout the war, the island of Saipan was considered to be the last barrier to Japan proper. More than any other island in the Pacific, it was important that it remained in Japanese hands. But for some unknown reason, neither Tojo nor the Navy properly prepared Saipan for a possible Allied attack. It wasn't ready when the American Navy attacked in June of 1944. For three brutal weeks, the Japanese fought off American forces. But on July 7th, they were out of hope. The Japanese raised the white flag. Now the United States had control of virtually the entire Pacific. The fall of Saipan was also the fall of Hideki Tojo, 
and the man who led the charge against him was none other than his predecessor, Fumimaro Konoe. After resigning from the role of prime minister, Konoe joined a loose affiliation of elder statesmen called the Jashin Kaigi. A fraternity of sorts, the Jashin Kaigi offered cabinet members and the emperor advice, but held no actual power. The entire council agreed with Konoe that Tojo wasn't the man who would bring victory to Japan. A change in leadership, in their view, was the only way to stop the American juggernaut. The Jashin Kaigi took their recommendation to Emperor Hirohito. This time, he agreed. On July 18th, Hideki Tojo was informed that the emperor no longer had confidence in his ability to lead. With no other options on the table, Tojo resigned as prime minister, war minister, and munitions minister. In a bloodless coup, Tojo was out of power. Alone and aimless, Tojo spent the early days of his forced retirement tending to his garden and reading about the Japanese war effort in the newspapers. The headlines weren't good. The Japanese were completely unable to stop the Allies. By February of 1945, the Americans were only 300 miles from the Japanese coast. Throughout the spring and summer, they bombed Tokyo using their recently acquired Saipan Superfortress. Meanwhile, the Japanese government was at war with itself. One faction argued that the country had to keep fighting, even though the Germans and the Italians had already surrendered. These men wanted to fight to the death. On the other side, there were those demanding peace. But the debate raged on until peace was no longer an option. At 8.15 a.m. on August 6, 1945, the city of Hiroshima was suddenly engulfed in a blinding whitish-pink light. The light was followed by a deafening blast, an atomic explosion. In the matter of seconds, around 70,000 people died, and by the end of the year, the death toll surpassed 100,000. The vast majority were civilians. Three days later, the United States dropped a second atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki, killing between 60,000 and 70,000 people. That evening, Tojo and other major figures were summoned to the Imperial Palace. Tojo believed he was about to help determine Japan's war strategy in the wake of the atomic bombs. Instead, he was shocked to hear from Emperor Hirohito himself that Japan was going to surrender. On August 15th, Emperor Hirohito announced publicly that he was capitulating to the United States. Though the formalities wouldn't happen until September 2nd, for all intents and purposes, the war was over. In the days that followed, many military and government officials began taking their own lives, including former Prime Minister Fumimaro Konoe. Some died by suicide out of shame, while others feared the inevitable trials for war crimes if or when they ended up in American hands. Within a few weeks, 
Tojo decided to follow suit. Just after lunch on September 11th, Tojo heard the sound of cars arriving at his home. He knew it was American military police coming to arrest him. With no other option and fearing a humiliating fate as a prisoner, Hideki Tojo tried to take his own life. But when the Americans stormed into Tojo's house, they found him still alive. He was rushed to a hospital and survived. After he recovered, Tojo was transferred to Sugamo Prison at the beginning of December 1945. He was joined by others, like Yosuke Matsuoka, who coined the phrase Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere, and Seishiro Itagaki, the co-conspirator behind the 1931 railway incident in Manchuria. Their trials began in May 1946. In total, 28 men, most of the military officers in Tojo's cabinet, faced a litany of charges involving war crimes and crimes against humanity. At the end of 1947, Tojo himself finally took the stand. He expressed shock at some of the treatment suffered by POWs, but he didn't express remorse. He also insisted that Japan was forced into war by the United States. What Japan did, he argued, was just. Still, he accepted the blame for leading his country into war. This was likely an attempt to protect Emperor Hirohito. By putting the onus on himself, Tojo was showing his loyalty to his emperor. It's unclear to what degree this may have helped. The U.S. ultimately did decide to spare Hirohito. But this was likely a strategic move based on practical concerns. The Americans believed the emperor could be a unifying symbol as Japan faced the uncertainty of a post-war world, a symbol they could influence. Meanwhile, Tojo's fate was likely sealed before his trial began. In November 1948, he was found guilty of war crimes and sentenced to death. On December 23, 1948, 63-year-old Hideki Tojo was marched to the gallows and hanged. This time, death stuck. In the wake of Japan's surrender, the United States occupied the country. Technically, rebuilding Japan was supposed to be a joint Allied effort. But in reality, General Douglas MacArthur dictated everything. According to historian James L. McLean, MacArthur became the blue-eyed shogun. He dissolved the Japanese diet, all political parties, and censored the press. He also disbanded the military and forbade officers from taking positions in government. In 1947, MacArthur essentially forced Japan to adopt a new constitution. Featuring liberal reforms, it gave women the right to vote and established a new parliament. But arguably, MacArthur's most consequential move was to strip the emperor of his powers. Like the samurais had done in 1192, MacArthur reduced the emperor to nothing more than a figurehead. The Constitution also dictated that Japan is not allowed to have an offensive military, only a defensive one. Nor can it declare war in future disputes. Only recently has Japan taken more proactive military measures, 
but even then they've been minimal. For example, when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, Japan sent 1,400 troops to help their American allies. Japanese troops also patrol the coast of Somalia to help fend off pirates and participate in relief efforts after events like earthquakes. But the days of the Japanese military are by and large a thing of the past. The military dictatorships of the shogun and even the samurai-influenced imperial army are unlikely to ever be revived. As for Hideki Tojo, he hasn't seen a rehabilitation like some of the previous Nazi allies and collaborators discussed in this season. In the post-war era, Japan did try to downplay the atrocities the country's leadership oversaw during the 1930s and 1940s. But in recent years, they've increasingly acknowledged the extent of the crimes. The rape of Nanjing, the abysmal treatment of prisoners of war, and the heinous experimentations of Unit 731 all remain a stain on Japan's historical record. Hideki Tojo may not have been the architect of these war crimes, but his military upbringing and the devotion to his various roles like war minister and prime minister meant that he was willing to let them happen, as long as it meant Japanese victory. In the end, though, there was no victory. Only millions of lives lost to the violent dream of imperialism. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next time, we'll conclude our four-part special with some of the conspiracy theories that have clouded the tragedy of Pearl Harbor. Even after 80 years, some still believe the official story isn't the whole truth. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time, and catch new episodes Mondays, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.